So today we're talking about chocolate. And by that, you might think we're going to be talking about some nice things like Valentine's candies, Godiva, hot cocoa, frozen hot chocolate, which is another variation of hot cocoa that I really like. But we're not. No, 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 no. You see, there's some serious shit going down that as consumers, this needs to be addressed. Here we are in 2021, and there are still 1.5 million children harvesting cocoa in West Africa, which is an increase since the last major study that was done in 2015. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. On this episode, we're talking to Simran Sethi, a senior fellow at the Oakland Institute and a freelance journalist and professor. She writes and reports and teaches mostly about social and environmental change. And she spent a lot of her career trying to get people to understand where their chocolate comes from. Again, it's it's absolutely unconscionable that it would not be a priority to ensure that a confection for children wasn't created by children. I just have to know, my cabinet stocked full of chocolate. Should I be eating any of it <laughs> uh-huh. or should I just dump that cabinet out into the trash? What do I need to do, Soleil? Tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, where is your chocolate from? Do you know that? Ooh, that's a good question. Not, not really, I guess. That's something I haven't thought about. So you have to figure that out. If you look up the brand and you look up slavery, that should be that should tell you a lot of things. Maybe they're embroiled in one of the lawsuits that Simran is going to tell us about, or maybe they are making really strong efforts to reduce the impact of you know poverty and slavery in the fields that produce the cacao that turns into chocolate bars. I know that chocolate is a guilty pleasure, but clearly I've misplaced the guilt. It's not on the consuming it aspect. It's on the sourcing and the problems behind it. I, I I think I am ready for this. Oh, for sure. We should all be totally fine with eating what we want, but with the caveat that maybe we should feel guilty about enslavement <laughs> and the awful <laughs> things that the food that we love facilitates in this world. You know, the good news is that there are a lot of really big and important efforts being made to allay these problems. As Simran tells us, she's feeling positive. So I think we should feel positive, too. And on that note, here's the interview. So you're on the show to talk to us about chocolate, which seems like such a basic, broad subject. But there's something really particular about the food, the industry that I think deserves so much space for a conversation, and that's labor and chocolate. It's funny because we can tell stories, as you well know, through any food, but chocolate like grabbed my heart, (laughs) you know, and I I dedicated a a chapter of my book to it. I created a podcast about it and not because like, ooh, it's this ooey gooey thing, but rather the stories of labor, history, identity, geography, science, of course, flavor, they're all embedded in this substance that many of us in the global north certainly have been, you know, enjoying our whole lives. But I think very few of us know the bigger, I I would say, more important stories behind it. And I feel like this this juxtaposition, this contradiction between the pleasure and the pain of, of these foods is something you've gotten a lot of traction out of, like on your podcast, The Slow Melt, and your book, Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. It's this almost surprising follow-up to the things that give us so much pleasure that, oh, wait, it's awful. So 
<laughs> um, can you tell me yes. just like why, <laughs> what you find so gripping about, about this topic? Okay. Well, th- the reason it doesn't just end with misery is because we have agency, right? And that's why I'm, I'm, you hear joy in my voice and I'm laughing, not because like, oh, ha ha, this sucks, <laughs> but rather glory, glory, glory. It's delicious. It's sweet. It brings us joy. It mends our broken heart. It's an expression of love. And we consumers can help shape this industry. We can help shape the future of the industry. And I mean this from a flavor perspective in relation to the types of cocoa that are grown. Um, This is what my book is about, agricultural biodiversity and the like extraordinary diversity of flavor you can find in cocoa if you allow for it. And then also reshaping the social justice aspects of this, which are, I mean, there is no other word but heartbreaking. It's absolutely unconscionable in 2021 that we are still seeing big chocolate manufacturers exploiting not only the land, but children to create their products. Just to say, generally, we're talking about farmers or kids, you know, who are already at the margins. Like farmers who grow cocoa are often in extreme poverty. And now they make between three and 6% of what we pay for a chocolate bar. So, and this is a huge drop in the eighties, you know, which was decades ago, they made closer to 16% of the value of a chocolate bar. So, so if you just think of this, it's like, wow, they promised decades ago that they would solve this problem when it came to light. And you know, what we're seeing now is more child labor, less money for the crop, and an industry that has ballooned. It's not like people have stopped eating chocolate. The market has grown exponentially and spread all over the world. Places that never had an appetite for chocolate before now have voracious appetites. So, you know, put all that together and you realize like there's there's a real problem here that needs to be addressed immediately. It was my impression that a lot of the major chocolate manufacturers like Mars and Nestle and so on were on board with making these changes. So why is this so persistent? They were on board with making the changes back in 2001. Mars, Ferrero, the Hershey Company, Kraft, Nestle, they all came together and said, we, wow, there's this problem of extreme child labor, which I want to make a distinction right now between extreme or forced child labor and what does tend to happen in the global south where farming families, I mean, it also happens you know, in other places, but like farming families will work together. So I'm not talking about like, a, a kid, you know, helping out the family to to help harvest a crop or, you know, doing something after school. I'm talking about extreme labor that is dangerous, you know, with these, the way you cut a cocoa pot is with a, a machete. You know, these are not instruments that should be in the hands of children. So again, in 2001, there was a piece of legislation introduced in the United States known as the Harkin Engel Protocol. And it was an international agreement that was aimed at reducing the worst forms of child labor in the cocoa sector, especially in Ivory Coast and in Ghana, where the majority of cocoa is grown. And it was supposed to reduce it by 70%, that's 70% by 2020. But what we find in the year 2021, there was a U.S. Department of Labor-funded study uh, that was released by the University of Chicago, and it actually came out um, in October of 2020, excuse me. But here we are in 2021, and there are still 1.5 million children harvesting cocoa in West Africa, 
which is an increase since the last major study that was done in 2015. Oh my God. 95% of these kids are performing hazardous work in 2021. Like this is where we are. So all those commitments that they made and they've continued to say throughout, I mean, there is, if you can't hear, I'm just going to say it. There is rage in me over this because these promises have been incremental. They kept pushing the the requirement a little further down, their, their targets a little further down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have this program. We have that program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing things. And then they throw out these numbers around, you know, child labor remediation is what they call it. And it would be, if you actually looked at the context of the numbers of people growing cocoa, it was like a flick of a percent, you know, 5%. But, but if they just threw out a number, it looked big, right? So without context, it looked like a lot was being done. Or then they'd say, oh, well, we just simply cannot trace this supply chain because you and your listeners may not know is that it, it usually takes a mass, like a, a significant amount of cocoa to ferment it well and properly, right? So oftentimes there'll be a lot of small farmers delivering, you know, small amounts of of cacao, cacao pulp, you know, this pulpy, glorious seed of a bumpy, colorful fruit to a middle person. And then it goes from there. But but the truth is they absolutely, we can see with blockchain, they absolutely can trace the supply chain. And we've seen similar echoes in, you know, Ethiopia, where I did research for, for my chapter on coffee. You know, I'm in the middle of a village with no running water. And yet I can see that they have put up the market price for coffee because they know people need to understand what their their work is worth, what their crop is worth. But unfortunately, that kind of oversight has not happened in cocoa. So they've been able to push their targets. They've been able to throw out numbers without any context. And they've been able to get away with this for far too long. So finally, we see what could be a turning point here in 2021 with three lawsuits. We will hear argument first this morning in case 19416, Nestle USA versus Doe and the consolidated case that are all directly related to exploitation that might finally force the hand of these major chocolate makers. And I'm writing about it right now for the counter. That piece will be out next month. So I'll go into detail on all of the lawsuits and the lawyer who, who, is, who is behind all of them and, and the kids from Mali who are now adults who have been fighting for so long for justice. I would love for you to just talk about what, you know, you mentioned machetes. What are these children doing? when they're working in these fields, in these plantations? They are largely, you know, working by hand to cut down these pods. And gosh, it's like a watermelon in terms of, I just want to give people like a visual on kind of the weight and heft kind of between maybe, I mean, all cacao isn't the same size, but the fruits, the weight and the kind of um, mass is between a cantaloupe or a honeydew and a watermelon, like a big, bigger watermelon. So, you know, these are small kids and it's a pulpy fruit. You're digging out once you cut the thick rind open, digging out a, a huge mass. These things are really heavy. And even though they grow on really thin stems, they sprout right off the tree, those stems are really sturdy. So in order to hack it off the tree, you can you can twist it off sometimes, but in order to hack into it, you're either cutting it open with a machete to, to harvest the pulp or you're smacking it against a tree. But the, the tree version is very slow. It's like the equivalent of like cutting open coconuts, right? Like <sighs> if you wanted to do it efficiently, you wouldn't try and try and try and try again to bang it on a surface. You would use 
you know, you would use an, a, a machete and cut it open. So, so that's where a lot of the danger comes in. Also, you know, I mean, now it's increasingly, the crop is increasingly grown in monoculture, but, but cacao is traditionally grown in, you know, really um, dense forests, right? So also having, having kids in these places, I think, I don't know, honestly, how much supervision is there. So hmm. um, I don't want to speak out of turn around that, but, but I think that could be another place where, you know, there's a, there's a lot of chance for kind of physical exploitation when people aren't in public view, um, which we certainly see with, with labor here in the United States, uh, particularly with migrant farm workers. So, okay, this sounds really awful. And, and yet you said that these corporations with all of their sort of efforts to reduce child labor in the fields have kind of come to a lot of talk and a lot of kicking the ball to the next sort of, you know, generation or whatever, even though it sounds so, I mean, I feel like it would be a public relations coup to say we've officially ended child labor in the production of this chocolate. Why the the lack of urgency? You would think it would be. And there's a company called Tony's Chocoloni that got a lot of press for talking about how they were creating slave-free chocolate. And I spoke to their PR people on more than one occasion. And there was all this obfuscation. Hmm. And then they're like, oh no, but we're trying to get the supply chain there. And, but that's not what their marketing materials said. And now they have been really called out for it and dropped from the, there's actually a list that people can check out, slavefreechocolate.org to, uh, there's a nice alphabetized list there of, of makers. I would encourage folks to take a look at that list. These are people who have a much greater control of their supply chain. And in the instance of Tony's, look, I mean, we, we do kind of get the idea that when you're massive, it's kind of hard to always trace something. If you're a smaller company, then, you know, you don't have as many products. Maybe, you know, you have a direct relationship with the cocoa farmers. You can forge that relationship, trace that connection more easily. I'm not trying to pretend it's easy, but I think, again, it's, it's absolutely unconscionable that it would not be a priority to ensure that a confection for children wasn't created by children under harmful conditions. Like that just seems to me like basic, but what we have seen is that there's also, I think this really uneasy I don't know, something that lives in us, which is, you know, there's a big expose. There have been more than one, but there's a big expose in the Washington Post a couple of years ago. And I have written extensively about cocoa and chocolate, always kind of touching this, but as a freelancer, I don't have the kind of backing of a publication like the, the Post in terms of like legal backing. So I've not gone super hard on this until this upcoming story. But, but just to say it didn't really move the needle. And I think there's a, there's a part of it is we don't want to think this thing that brings us joy is created through misery. It's really hard. Like we just need one thing to be nice and sweet. Hmm. And sometimes amidst all the things that are going on, especially with everything we're seeing around, you know, racial injustice, police brutality, the pandemic, the economic instability, that's just everything with politics like that, that, oh, please don't tell me my chocolate now. You know, like, (laughs) please let, let me have some joy. Just let me have this one thing. So I really genuinely get it. But at the same time, I think 
we can do better. We can do better as consumers. And I would also say like editors are really reluctant in terms of storytelling. If you look at the kinds of coverage we get on chocolate, there is a disproportionate amount on chocolate, a disproportionate amount of information on desserts, mm. on what I am now increasingly feeling like is the fetishization of craft chocolate. Like, let's just talk about all this bounty of flavors. Like, I believe it's really lovely and important, but I think of it as a means to an end, not just, you know, I don't want to just sort of just wax poetic about like terroir and be done with it. And I've had editors cut those segments about the farmers from my work. And, you know, it's really tough because the needle to me isn't moving quickly enough or hard enough. And in part, I think it's because, you know, Editors also want to sell magazines, newspapers, you know, whatever, and, and they don't want to turn people off. And they also kind of know there's a very fine line here between keeping people excited about something that brings them joy and making them, you know, want to crawl back into bed and put a pillow over their head. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can totally relate, um, surprisingly, yeah. as someone who yeah. brings a lot of unpleasantness, uh, mm -hmm. so, so they say, into food writing. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Carrier of pain. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm mm -hmm. so, I mean, it makes sense because I feel like food writing as a genre has started to move away from wanting to keep politics out of food wholesale um, slowly. But it does seem like chocolate is and dessert are sort of the final frontiers of like ethics because it's just you can talk about the ethics of sushi, for instance, or mm -hmm. um, like, you know, organic farming and sustainability and that sort of stuff. But I think it's just the the real stark difference in someone who who knows child labor and enslavement exists in the industry um, versus someone who just sees a sort of symbolism of chocolate and like wants to embrace that. Um, the emotions at play here are so different and so disparate that I, I would imagine we have we collectively as readers of food writing and writers of food writing have just only just begun our our journey to reconciling those feelings. Well, scratch the surface of any food, anything that's part of capitalism, and you're going to find exploitation of land and labor. Right. So, and it's one thing, and I mean, no offense to people who have like a deep relationship with sushi, just as an example, you know, but in the United States, I would argue people certainly would be okay with that. Maybe, I mean, maybe not super happy, but, but the relationship they've had with chocolate as again, that, um, you know, that token of love, that thing that you celebrate certain holidays with, you know, little eggs and whatnot, hearts and all this, you know, walk around Halloween candy, et cetera, et cetera. It's so woven into the culture that there's a particular kind of thing around that, right? That, that you just, you don't want to get too close to it. Cause if you look under that wrapper, things start to get really messy. And even when I was creating my podcast, the slow melt, in season one, I was really trying to like gently help people get into the water, right? Like if you didn't know anything about chocolate, hold my hand. The water is warm. Let's take the, these steps together. Let's learn about chemistry. Let's learn about history. Let's learn about flavor. Let's learn about ethics. But it, we were going to hit hard on, you know, really deeply on deforestation and, you know, which is 
cocoa production is one of the largest sources of deforestation in West Africa. I mean, like they're cutting down rainforests for your chocolate bar, you know, and also go hard on child labor. But, you know, finances just didn't allow us to keep going. But but that I always knew I couldn't start there because I really there would be so much resistance to that going in because of the emotional connection that people have to this substance. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast in the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleho, and we're back with Simran Sethi, journalist and professor. You know, I have seen coverage of child labor in chocolate on, you know, Bloomberg and like other sorts of outlets, especially when the lawsuits came out. How do you sustain the conversation? Like, how do we continue to talk about it in a way that, you know, it seems like public consciousness is a really important piece of of this, of improving conditions and just putting pressure on these corporations? Have you found a reliable way to get people to keep thinking about this? So I think it's more than just informing people, because like you just said, there have been articles in Bloomberg. There was, you know, definitely something ran in the counter. There was maybe even a short piece in The Times mentioning the Supreme Court upcoming, you know, that the Supreme Court um, decided to take on one of the three cases. But have you seen anyone change their behavior in response to this? That's a really good question. Right. Like, so we throw information at people and I just, again, feel, I mean, I'm a journalism professor, communications teacher. Like I think a lot about not just the information being out there, but what does it take for it to permeate? And I've thought a lot about this with these lawsuits. It's like, wow, well, that decision was made on December 20th when people were very, very stressed out about the stimulus Mm. and about the holidays and were they going to be able to make it through? Were they going to still be able to feed their kids that like, it just got buried between the holiday and everything with, with the, you know, with economic relief. So, so I think that timing is critical, but I also think what's really been missing is anything that really touches the heart of the lived experience of who harvests our cocoa. And that's why in my book, the people who were centered were farmers. And that's why in my podcast, the people you heard from weren't just hipster makers. I mean, I love them. Thank you, craft chocolate makers from all over the globe. But my goal was for people, for listeners to understand that cocoa grows in a thin band around the equator. Cocoa comes through black and brown hands. Coco was born in a bean-shaped area between Ecuador and Peru, and it was domesticated in what's now Mexico. The majority of cocoa is grown now in West Africa. Like we would not have this crop were it not for black and brown people. And I want us to hear from them. So I think that to me has been fundamental in my work is making sure that that people's experiences are centered, not the data, not the numbers, but really um, what it means for someone to go through this. And that's, you know, that's what I'll be conveying in the piece that I'm working on. Um, And I hope it will, it will strike a different kind of chord, but I also am aware that, you know, it, it's not just me writing a like heartfelt story. It's the law, you know, it's like, that's, you know, sometimes what it takes is, a legal requirement to make a change because the businesses 
signed on to a voluntary protocol and they have not done it. So at this point, we need another entity to step in. And I see, you know, governments in West Africa that are demanding, you know, a, a baseline price for cocoa. I see governments in, you know, importing countries being a lot more scrutinizing about the quality of cocoa and about the quality of the supply chain and how people have been treated. And at least here in the United States, like these are big levers of change, these three lawsuits, because most of the major chocolate companies are headquartered in the United States. This year could be the year that we see significant change. Um, but I think like asking companies to do it voluntarily is sort of like asking the wolf, you know, to take care of the hens. Like that's, you're not engineered to do that. Capitalism is not engineered to care for people. It is built on the exploitation of labor. It is built. That is how money is made. I, I mean, I have an MBA and focused on sustainability. And I really, at one point believed like there was so much promise there. And I still do, I think to a certain scale, you know, that we can see extraordinary change happen through business. Um, but at the same time, I think assuming it will happen is um, is perhaps misguided. Right. So are you saying that the businesses need to be they, there needs to be some external pressure like they cannot self-regulate? Absolutely. There needs to be external pressure, I think. For, and, and two very powerful lovers are consumer behavior. But because right now it seems like consumers are quite reluctant. I don't think anybody doesn't know this anymore. So like, I think really like fundamentally people have to know if you're paying a dollar for this thing that came from halfway across the world, like somebody didn't get paid, you know, and it's not Willy Wonka. So like, I, I think we separate from that because we are just trying to get through the day. And this really is an affordable luxury. It's a little sweet joy. Like no, everyone I know myself included is eating chocolate to feel better. Right. So mm -hmm. I just, I really have great compassion for that kind of psychological schism. But but that's why we need this legal lever. That's why we need to see someone forcing the hand of these multinational cocoa companies. And, you know, I wish I could say it was the, you know, the exporting countries where cocoa is grown. But but cocoa is, again, it's, it's a crop of largely poor farmers who have no economic clout, you know, and this is coming from from poor countries. I mean, so I just want to say that the decisions that are made with these lawsuits could be pivotal and could ripple through the entire supply chain because of how the United States is positioned, not only in terms of, you know, where the companies are headquartered, but just on, you know, the global stage. I mean, we've taken quite a battering, you know, but, but just like there is still might there. Um, and there is transformative power there. So how much should the average chocolate bar cost then? If it were to sort of pack in all of these sort of, I don't know, maybe like more subsidies towards, um, you know, that go directly to farmers, for instance, and paying fair prices for the product and allowing people to have a living wage um, to produce this stuff, what would that look like? These are such important questions. Um, you know, interestingly, I have always said when people kind of wring their hands and they're like, well, what do you want me to do then? I'm like, I want you to pay for better chocolate. And I want you to eat chocolate that has a higher percentage of cocoa, right? Because a like a, 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 a candy bar only is required to have like 10% cocoa content, right? But then you see there's like these glorious 70%, 80, 90% bars, like go full tilt, you know, that's mainly cocoa. Um, but what I found, and this is in research I did a couple of years ago, 
was the apportionment didn't actually change by that much. And what I mean by that is the majority of the money was still going to the retailer or to the end maker versus the farmer. Mm. It's just in the craft industry, the amount was much higher. It wasn't tethered to the commodities market, right? In the commodities market where cocoa is, is, you know, globally traded and sold, um, the price is, you know, it's appallingly low. There was interestingly, and I say this interestingly in quotes, there was research that was done by one of the companies that is being sued right now. It's Barry Calibo uh, with the French Development Agency. This research was done between 2013 and 2015, and I think they released the study in 2016. Barry Calibo is the world's largest cocoa producer, and they found that farmers earned about a dollar per day for their labor. This was back in 2013, or between 2013 and 2015, and now they are being sued for what? continuing to exploit labor. So the very people who were part of this study and shared it in a press release didn't do enough, right, to resolve this problem. So the concept of true cost accounting is quite extraordinary. And what that really says is like all the things that we externalize, Mm -hmm. we put inside of the product. So if you chop down a rainforest and all of a sudden all that carbon is released into the environment, right? Or we've lost habitat for all of these endangered species. Like, what is the value of that? If you did that, like right now, a chocolate company doesn't pay anything for that deforestation. But what would it mean to calculate that? What would it mean to calculate the loss of biodiversity? What would it mean to calculate fair labor? I can't give you a number, but what I can say is a lot more than what we're paying. Look and see who is telling you where this cocoa was grown. Who is naming farmers? Who is telling you how much cocoa they put in their product? Who is talking about their relationships with places of origin? Are they going there? You know, check out that 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 list that I suggested earlier. Pay attention. Get curious. You've got a phone in your pocket. Like, Google it when you're standing there in the grocery store. You know, just see what you can discover. Because all of these things that bring us joy... I think it's really hard for me, certainly, to know that they came at the cost of someone else suffering. And and I'm at a point where I just, I you know, to whatever extent I can, I don't want to have to reconcile that. I just want to do the very best job I can to make sure that the chocolate I buy is created by people who love and care about their product and about the people behind it. I think a really interesting counterpoint to that, that I've heard a lot too, because I have publicly worked through a lot of these issues as well with the price of food, the price of fish um, and Mm -hmm. seafood. You know, it it feels like a really impossible chicken and the egg situation where you want people to pay more for these products so that there can be, you know, better outcomes for the people who create them and, you know, facilitate them. But we're not at the point where everyone has that income or that sort of financial or mental space to think about ethics. How do we bridge that gap? Well, one big way is, I guess for me, sometimes it feels like a smokescreen or a diversion. Like, oh, you're just like, everything you're saying is just for rich people. It's like, I'm absolutely not saying that. Like, I always want people to know everything I say is tethered to the fight for fair wages, for living wages for everybody, no matter where they are in the world. So like, that's really important to me that I'm not decoupling those things. But I mean, you bring up a really excellent point, right? Like, we're not trying to just create fancy products for fancy people. But 
I would say there are some bridge chocolates that are at a price point of probably closer to like five to $7 for a bar. And, you know, I mean, I know this gets kind of said a lot, but I will say I would not be happy with a world without chocolate. I have lived a lot of my life through this substance. It was my every birthday cake, my divorce cake, you know, it got me through <laughs> the pandemic. Like it's, it's still getting me through the pandemic. Like no joke. Like this is my anchor. This is my soul food. And if you buy a better quality bar, it is going to last you longer. Like I genuinely will say like the quality of what's in there, it, it slows me down. I'm not scarfing it. I'm not just getting the sugar hit. I'm really tasting a complex food. And I know sometimes it's really hard because one of the first craft chocolate bars I bought was from a maker called Mast Brothers. And it was a bar that I found absolutely inedible. <laughs> and I didn't understand at, the, at that moment. I was like, well, I guess I'm just not sophisticated enough. And then, of course, that whole story unraveled. But the thing that I think is really important is now there's a lot more information out there. And I guarantee this because I put a lot of it out there on how to taste chocolate, on how to buy chocolate, on how to get something that will make you happy. So if you do drop five bucks or seven bucks instead of just a dollar, my gosh, if you can just hit 14, even like 10 to $14, you're going to get some of the best chocolate in the world. That's, you know, that's a decision that we all have to make on our own. But I think that there's a lot more opportunity there than people may realize. So I want to backtrack a tiny bit just for listeners who have no idea what the controversy with Mast Brothers was. Um, I believe it was a... And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was that they were accused of mixing someone else's chocolate with their own chocolate for their bars when they had previously claimed to be a bean to bar business. Is that correct? That is correct. And I wrote about it for Huffington Post, if anyone wants to dig that one up. But I will say it was it was a concern for like these purists, right? Like, ooh, they said they were bean to bar, but they were actually using couverture, which is kind of like pre-made chocolate blocks instead of going from the bean. So if you can think about it this way, I brought a pie shell in the grocery store and then I put some filling in it and I tell you, Soleil, I made you a pie. And I, for all intents and purposes, I did. Okay. <laughs> but any actual pie maker can tell you uh, that's some BS, right? So that's the kind of difference. So the people who got really upset about it, I think were like maybe other makers who are like, how are they getting all this credit and attention. But I'll tell you what I find upsetting was, so I have, I have done sensory training. I mean, this is how obsessed I am with this substance. <laughs> I uh, was visiting scholar at the Cocoa Research Center. It's the largest collection of cocoa in the world. I studied chocolate making there. I studied sensory analysis, very few programs out there in the world. This was one of the first sensory analysis of cocoa. And what is considered a defect in cocoa is something that happens in drying. When you dry, um, you can dry in the sun or you can dry over like dryers. You can dry the cocoa that are maybe um, powered by wood or powered by diesel. And cocoa is a really like fatty bean and fat absorbs all the aromas. That's why you don't want to stick your chocolate in the fridge besides, say, garlic. Or don't put it in the fridge at all. But, like, it's going to soak up all of those mm. all of those aromas, right? So what's considered a defect, which is this kind of hammy, savory taste from diesel dryers, is especially known in Papua New Guinea, um, Mass Brothers turned it into a smoke bar. And that was, to me, really intriguing when I saw it on a shelf. I think it was like, I don't know, 11, 12 bucks. And I bought it and I was like, this tastes gross. Like it wasn't <laughs> for me, right? So uh, 
and some people love it. Like, I don't want to, you know, whatever you love, you love. But just to say there was so much hype around this, mm. but no one was really, a lot of people who were hyping it were just kind of not actually understanding the sensory attributes of cocoa and what are actually considered defects because it was such a, it was an emerging kind of conversation, you know, back in like 2013, 2012. So, so I think now people are getting a lot more sophisticated about it, but they had a beautiful rapper. They had a great story. We're talking about Mast Brothers. You know, I think they they sent some cocoa on a sailboat or something. Like, you know, it was just very writable, you know, but um, but at least in my in my mind, it wasn't very delicious. And there are many other makers I can suggest to folks um who kind of meet that bar um and who are really, I think, coaxing out the very best qualities that you can find in a cocoa bean. I actually think that'd be a great way to end this interview. I would love to hear about mm-hmm. who has been inspiring you in this space, who you can rely on for ethics and quality, who's been giving you joy as far as making really great chocolate that you can trust. Did you really just ask me who sparks joy? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Marie Kondo, let's go. Um, I'm going to suggest, first of all, because I do want to touch on these lawsuits. Mm. There is a lawsuit right now that is before the Supreme Court. They'll decide on it by June against Nestle and Cargill. Look and see, does your chocolate come from Nestle or Cargill? There is a second lawsuit that was filed on Valentine's Day against Nestle, Cargill, Calibo, Mars, Olam, Hershey's, World's Finest, and Blommer Chocolate. And that was about, um, that's actually a petition with U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, right? And um, that's looking at the source of cocoa. And that's around, I believe, child trafficking. And then this third case, the third case is definitely around child trafficking. And that is, um, that's about liability for known human rights violation in the supply chain of a multinational company. The Supreme Court ruling is a case based on child slavery on behalf of six formerly enslaved children. Why did I just write all that off? Because you can find their amicus brief and you can see the list of chocolate makers who are absolutely, you know, who signed on to support this lawsuit. So I would look there. I would also, again, go to slavefreechocolate.org and look at craft makers in your community. The ones that spark joy for me, you can find a whole maker series on my podcast. And because I was the creator, I chose my favorite chocolate makers, (laughs) Askenosi, Soma, Fruition, are some of the makers I adore, but I also, those are all based in North America. I really, and specifically Canada and the United States. I also really want to encourage people to look at bars that are made at the origin where they're grown. Cocoa grows in this thin band around the equator, as I mentioned. And there are world-class makers making extraordinary cocoa in Mexico, in Colombia, in Peru, in India. Like, it really means something to keep that money fully in the local economy. So I don't want to keep you forever, but I do want to keep you forever. If listeners want to find you and your work, your podcast, your book, your stories... Where do they start? Right. Simranseti.com, uh, Twitter and Instagram, Simranseti, S-I-M-R-A-N-S-E-T-H-I. All my work is there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Simran. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was incredible. Incredibly informative. And one of the things I'm curious about, Soleil, what do you do right after that? Right. You have this in-depth conversation about 
you know, the industry and all of the problems tied to it. What happens right after that as an interviewer? What'd you do? Well, I was actually gifted an Easter chocolate by a friend oh <laughs> earlier that, that week. And um, I didn't have any food in the fridge and I was hungry because I, I usually do the interviews during the lunch hour. So I ate some chocolate. I... I don't I had no idea where it came from. It just existed in my fridge. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, my God. No, I mean, I feel like that's a very natural thing to do. Look, this is a topic that has, you know, so many layers. And, and I feel like everyone's going to walk away knowing more. But that's going to be paired with what your base instinct is when it comes to chocolate. Like, we have a lot of work to do to untangle this, I guess, because your knee-jerk reaction is to bite some. Like, after talking to Simran, I cannot just mindlessly buy it anymore. Like I have to look up where it's from and if they are involved in like anti-slavery efforts, like that's real. And I'm really just excited to know all of this stuff and to be a better consumer of chocolate. Yeah, 100%. I, I think I'm going to go into that cabinet now and, uh, and do a little bit of research instead of a little bit of eating. Thanks again to Simran Sethi for being in conversation with us and to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. 